Good morning. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in our second and final week of our series on Jude. It's a small little book in the New Testament, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what it means to um, uh, really kind of discern God's voice in the midst of a world that's polluted with a lot of other voices. Um, how many of you are remember or are familiar with the cartoon Animaniacs? Anyone, anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, good, 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 good. Good. I want to show you a clip. There's this little bit um, called Good Idea, Bad Idea. I don't know if you remember this. I think of it often in life because it often applies. Uh, anyways, watch this. Watch this clip. It's time for another Good Idea, Bad Idea. Good Idea. Kissing a loved one. Bad Idea. Kissing a total stranger. Good idea. Visiting the circus. Bad idea. Having the circus visit you. Good idea. Doing your own yard work. Bad idea. Doing your own dental work. Good idea. Going alpine skiing in the winter. Bad idea. Going alpine skiing in the summer. I was thinking about this clip um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, because uh, while reading Jude, it, it, I was thinking about it because if you were to summarize the teachings of Jude, this letter that Jude writes, this very short letter, if you were to summarize it, you could summarize this. It would be good idea, teaching people about God's grace. Bad idea, teaching people that God's grace means they can do whatever they want to each other. This is often the difference between good theology and bad theology. Good theology, God's grace abounds. Bad theology, because God's grace abounds, let's just engage in all levels of religious and sexual perversion with each other. The large parts of the book of Jude that we only referenced last week, if you dig into them, you're going to find a couple of things. You can put up that slide, Max. If you look into this section of Jude, um, you're going to find a couple of things. First, you're going to find a lot of Old Testament references. You're going to find references to the book of Enoch, to the testimony of Moses. Uh, But the other thing you're going to find is that under the surface, the problem that really showed up in the early church had to do with the ways in which they would pervert God's grace. Now, without getting into it too much, um, ancient Greek and other ancient cultures and religions um, would often intertwine sex with religion. It's just a kind of a a, a religious practice. It still happens in various other cults and, and religions. So in Christianity, during this time, people would do the same thing. They started trying to put together their worship with other sort of strange or perverse sexual practices. Paul addresses this in some of his letters, um, and Jude uh, addresses it. This is what he means when he says in verse 8, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, uh, reject authority, and uh, heap abuse on celestial beings. 
And this all comes from this church that Jude is addressing. It comes from this teaching that they had about God's grace, uh, which he says in verse 4. He says, they are the ones who, quote, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. We talked last week that word for immorality was sort of violence or, or without restraint. It just kept getting, it just get worse and worse and worse. Uh, and it was this idea that because God forgives, we can do whatever we want. We can make other people do whatever they want for or against us. And what's worse wasn't just their behavior. As much as they were influencing uh, the, the, their others in the community. So it wasn't just bad that they were doing things that were immoral. It was that they were also influencing, teaching, and encouraging other people to say, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. Come do these immoral things with us. I have a story that, that comes to mind immediately in, in modern-day Christianity. It's a, it's a story that's far too familiar. Um, I won't get into it other than to say this. Uh, I, I know of a, a, a friend who shared this with me. Um, I heard of a pastor who would make a young person do things that you shouldn't make a young person do. And the young person knew it was wrong. pastor made him do it anyways. And then afterwards would lead the young person through a, a time of repentance, telling them that God would forgive them for those things that he made them do. This is religion gone terribly bad. It happened in the time of Jude. It happens today. And here's the thing. Good theology, misapplied, bad theology. Good theology misapplied every time. It's bad theology. It can become toxic. It can become destructive. It can become dangerous. It can be horrible. If you ever wonder why Jude appears so angry in his letter, this is why. If you're able to fill in the blanks to my story, it's why, it's why Jude is bold enough in verse 7 to say this. He says, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. When you hear stories of people taking something as beautiful as God's grace and the teachings of Jesus and using them to hurt especially vulnerable people, that's how you feel about them. You, you use words like suffer and punishment and eternal fire. You do. So today we're going to finish Jude's letter. And we're picking it back up as Jude starts to change his tones a little bit. He's going to move into a period of encouragement, but before he gets there, he's going to give us one final warning. It's a good summary for the rest of the book, uh, one final warm, a warning and a summary. So here's what he says. He says this, verse uh, 17. He says, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord, Jesus Christ, foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Here's his warning. Three things right here that define bad theology, false teachers. Um, they apply to cults. They, they apply to just misunderstanding of God's word. But I'm just going to use the word bad theology. And I, and I say, I'm going to say, I'm going to refer to bad theology the rest of the thing. You could fill that word. You could fill that. You could replace that word with cults. You could replace that word with bad politics. You could probably replace that word with, bad, with a bad worldview or bad policies. You know, any sort of like big overarching big idea that you kind of like helps shape our life together, but it does it in a way that harms people. I'm talking about bad theology as a, as a theologian, but you could apply it other places, okay? So here's three things that make for bad theology. Here's the first one. It's bound to happen. He says, Jesus and the apostles told us this was going to happen. We shouldn't be surprised. 
It was, we could have predicted this. Jesus did predict it. The apostles predicted that this would happen. The sad truth is this. Humans have an amazing ability to take something that is good and make it horrible. God has this amazing ability to take something that's horrible and make it good. That's what makes God God and us not. But humans have this amazing ability to take something that could be good and just make it horrible. And we do it all the time. And people have done it with our faith. Our faith has been around for a little while. 2,000 years since the, since the time of Jesus and, and thousands of years of the Jewish faith before that. And it's happened time and time again in the scriptures and, and in the 2,000 years since the scriptures were written or finished. So here's what I hope you can hear. Just because someone takes a good thing and makes it bad doesn't mean that original thing is bad. It can be hard for somebody who's been really hurt by faith to think of faith as good at all or to ever see it as good. And my, my prayer is, and I know this applies to people in the room, my prayer is that you can. That you can, that you can divorce yourself from the ways in which it's been misapplied and misused and abused and, and give back to the good that it once, what it was supposed to be. So the first thing is this, it's bound to happen, it's not, it, it, it's not surprising, it's going to happen, and so we should be prepared for it. That's what we're going to spend some time with today. What does it mean to be prepared for it? It's, gonna, it's bound to happen, let's be prepared for bad theology. The second one is this, he says, uh, Jude says that bad theology is di- divisive. He says that instead of bringing people together, instead of building up community and, and creating better sense of love and a sense of like caring for one another, bad theology becomes divisive and it can tear us apart. The third thing, which leads us to the third point, which is simply this. Bad theology brings out the worst in us. Bad theology, like I said, bad communities, bad politics, it brings out the worst in us. Jude talks about it like this. He says that these leaders and their teachings are, are based on ungodly desires and natural instincts. In, in the church world of this time, and in, in sort of like the theology of the New Testament, a way to think about it is that you had over here the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit kind of would help us become new creations. The Holy Spirit would, would be poured out on us, and it would shape us into the people we were always meant to be. One way of saying that the Holy Spirit would make us the best version of ourselves. That's one contemporary way we'd talk about it. Well, the natural instincts or ungodly desires was the opposite of that. It brought out the worst in us. Make us the worst version of ourselves. It bring out all of those natural instincts or ungodly desires like greed and lust and perversion and hatred impatience. All these things that we know in various forms and various levels are in us. Bad theology will just draw it out of us. Good theology, the work of the Holy Spirit and what God could do in our lives does the opposite. It brings out the best in us. So bad theology is predictable. It's it's bound to show up. It's bound to pop up. And we as humans tend to make things that are good and make them worse. It's divisive and it brings out the worst. And so because of that, because it's, it's bound to happen and it brings out the worst in us, we should be able to recognize it. So before we finish Jude, I want to take a second and share just a couple of ways to recognize bad theology. This is an exhaustive list, but it's a start. Here it is. Um, next slide. These will be up uh, on the screen, a couple of different um, 
uh, times. So I encourage you to, if you're if you're interested in writing something down, this would be a good thing to write down. Also, it might be hard to write down, so you're welcome to snap a photo or email me, and I'll send it to you. But here's just five, and this is an exhaustive list, uh, five ways in which you can recognize uh, bad theology. I got this list originally from I, the original list, and I've ad, added to it and edited it, but the original list that inspired this came from an article from The Atlantic on how to recognize you're in a cult. So this would apply to cults. But, but I kind of broadened it a little bit bigger than just being in a cult because the reality is there's a lot of churches, a lot of people, and we're not immune to this, that aren't cults. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about cults, um, but aren't cults but still have bad theology. Okay, so this is bigger than just a cult, but it could also apply to that, and it's, it's, they're not mutually exclusive. Does that make sense? So here's the first one. I want to walk through these uh, relatively briefly. Um, the first one is uh, probably bad theology if it opposes critical thinking. If your theology is asking you to not think about it, I'd take note. Our hope is that we might be a community that, that likes to think and wrestle and discuss life in all of its messiness. If at the end of the sermon, uh, you're like, you know what, Joe, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this. My response will be, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're going to think about it. You're going to wrestle with it. That you don't just accept what I'm saying as, as uh, some sort of authority on any particular subject because I'm human. Uh, there are times that I feel very compelled to speak for God. I said this last week, but many times I'm just doing the best that I can. I'm sharing the best ideas that I've got, and I'm doing. I'm just. I'm. I'm just trying. You know. I'm just. I'm putting my heart out there, and I'm doing the best that I can. So we got to wrestle with this together. I'm, I'm far more interested in being a part of a community that engages hard stuff together, as opposed to being in a community that just accepts and does what they're told. Uh, this is true for most of Scripture. Look at Jesus. I love the way Jesus teaches. He uses two primary teaching methods. One, parables that often don't make any sense. Two, he responds to questions with more questions. Here's Jesus' teaching method, parables and questions. Why? Because they both require critical thinking. In fact, he says, you won't be my disciple unless you understand this parable. It took me a while to wrestle with this. Uh, he doesn't quite say it like that. That's my own paraphrase. But it took me a while to wrestle. What did he mean by that? He says, those who know will know more, and those who don't know will know less. That's also my own paraphrase. But I was like, what's going on here? And what I realized is Jesus is only in, interested in disciples who dig deep enough to fully understand. He says, you, you want to be my disciple? Then try to figure out this riddle. And if you're not willing to put in the work to think through it and figure it out, then, you know, this isn't for you. I'm not just going to tell you what you need to do. I'm not going to just interpret the law like all of the other people who interpret the law. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up in a story. And the same is uh, in Jude. Jude does this. I mean, if you read Jude, it's like, what is going on here? Jude builds an exceptionally compelling case for his argument for his predominantly Jewish, for his Jewish audience. And if you don't engage in critical thinking, I can't even hardly make sense of half of what Jude says. I mean, it's so nuanced and complicated. Try reading Romans or any of Paul's run-on sentences without using critical thinking. So this is just central to our faith. The Bible was written this way. And that's what it means to be a part of our faith is we've got to engage with this. We've got to wrestle with it. We've got to think about it. The second one is this, emphasizing special, not empathizing, sorry, special doctrines outside of the orthodoxy. There are some things in our faith that are not essential. I mentioned this last week. I was once told that I was not going to heaven because I didn't speak in tongues. I was also told by someone else that I wasn't going to heaven because I wasn't fully immersed in baptism. These are real conversations I'm having with real Christians. Some people tell me that your baptism doesn't count if you're baptized under a certain age. They, they can't decide what that age is, but then it doesn't count below it. 
baptized as a child. Here's the thing you need to understand. None of these teachings are biblical, and all of them have one thing in, in, in common, control. It's all about control. These, these kind of doctrines are, are designed to try and control who is in and who is out. And I think any time we use theology to control who is in and who is out, it's bad theology. Uh, if you speak in tongues, great. If you've been fully dunked, awesome. If, if you were baptized as a child, even better. If you were baptized as an adult, praise God. The most essential thing is Jesus. And Jesus says it like this, to love your God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you take any other doctrine, and doctrines aren't bad, and churches have different doctrines, and we have doctrines that don't always, there's people here who don't even agree with all of our doctrines, and, and certainly we don't agree with everyone else's doctrines, but if you take doctrines and you make it like a, a litmus test to, to being a part of the community, then I think it's gone too far. And it's, it's a sign of bad theology. It's a sign of a bad community. The third one is this, uh, seeking inappropriate loyalty to leaders. This is very common in cults, but it, but it happens in churches that I wouldn't call a cult. There's this church um, and pastor, very popular today. You would know this church. You've seen songs that this church has written. There's people here who probably listen to this pastor via podcast. So I'm not going to tell you who it is. If you want to know, I will tell you, but I'm not going to tell you it up here. I don't want to ruin your life uh, because this is a fine church. But they have this set of core values that they call the code. First off, really? <laughs> You're going to call it the code? Like that already, I'm not interested but they call it the code, and they, uh, they have materials to teach their children the code. And let me just say, most of their code is fine. It has things like generosity and, and what it means to be a servant. But they have one code and materials to teach their children this code, and the code is unity. Once again, not bad. Unity is a good core value, unity. But their unity is such that it says unity... We will preserve or protect our unity by trusting our visionary. Not the vision, but their pastor. So they have a coloring, they have a coloring book that teaches all of these codes. One of them is this. And here it is. Let's put it up. That's their pastor. And it says unity. We are united under the visionary. Okay. Starting to get a little uncomfortable. A little weird. This isn't a cult, by the way, not by definitions of cult. This is just, this is a church that people, you, you're probably familiar with the church, if I told you. And if you can read really small print, you can figure it out. Here is, here's what it says at the bottom. Uh, this church is built on the vision God gave our pastor. We will protect our unity in supporting his vision. Can you imagine if that's how we organized our church, if that was one of our core values? Here's the thing, you don't have to imagine. I've done the work for you. We've got the coloring page here. It's great. I have some copies if you want to. The, in fact, the kids are back there coloring it right now. If anyone wants one. And you know what? If you're like, you know what? That's not fair. I've got one with Alyssa too. It's fine. I showed this to her. She said it was terrible. I don't know if she meant my drawing or, or the sentiment. Here's the problem. I, I, 100%, God gives vision to people and to leaders, and he puts them in the leadership positions. You can read that throughout the Bible. But if a vision is coming from God, it is always bigger than that individual. And if it's really from God, it usually outlasts them. So we can't be united around a visionary. We can be united around a vision, and that might have come from somebody who is visionary. I don't know. 
but we can't be united around people. Paul had to deal with this in the Corinthian church. They were all in love with different leaders and had super loyalty to different people, some to Apollos and some to Paul. And Paul says it like this. He says, what after all is Apollos? And and what is Paul? And who is Stephen? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. That's the word there. They're not assigned to a position. They're assigned to a task. So the leader is a servant with a particular task, just like every other servant in the church. It's an important task. It's an essential task, just like taking any other task. could be just as essential. It's essential. But they are assigned to each a task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God is making it grow. In other words, God is ultimately the one who's working here. And it's not about loyalty to a particular leader. And if you see that, if you, if you, and I know people who've been a part of toxic church environments where this was expected, where I've heard stories where various loyalty clauses had to be signed to work there, and just, this isn't just a problem in Jude's time. This, is, this still happens. The fourth one is this, crossing healthy boundaries of behavior. Crossing healthy boundaries of behavior. This is particularly true for a lot of cults. Uh, you can know you're in a cult if they're forcing you to give up healthy boundaries. This was the problem, uh, certainly in the, the, the context of Jude. Uh, there was this expectation to engage in perverse sexual religious behavior um, as part of their church community. Very inappropriate. That's why Jude is so angry uh, at them. But it happens in a variety of other ways. Uh, oftentimes in unhealthy communities, you might be expected or forced to give up certain friendships, to leave behind certain family members, um, to leave a, a, someone you're dating or you won't be a part of the community. These are fairly standard in a variety of faith environments. Uh, sometimes there's an expectation to give up uh, all of your property and surrender it to that commune or that organization. Anytime that you're asked or challenged or forced to kind of cross a personal boundary, this is, this is bad theology. This is unhealthy. Now, here's where it gets a little nuanced. Some of those things aren't bad. I can imagine a scenario where someone felt so compelled by the love and generosity of God that they would surrender all of their stuff to their church. If you feel compelled to do that, we will receive it. Cautiously, and probably somewhat advise you some anyways. But, you know, we can have that conversation. But I can imagine, there's beautiful stories in the church of saints who've done this very thing. It's beautiful. The problem is, is once again, a power dynamic in control when it's expected or forced or necessary for belonging. It's, it, it's a different than if you choose it. So, so in the early church, this is actually in the earliest church, they would. Many people would just surrender their entire property to the church. It just, they'd give it up. And so much so, they became like peer pressure. And there was this one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who felt that peer pressure. So they decided they, they couldn't give up what they had. Um, but they, they decided they, they needed to look like they did. So they lied about it. They sold their property, they kept a bunch of it, and pretended like they gave it all to the church. And, and this, is what, um, this is what they say to him in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 4. It says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold, their property? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It's an important principle that's still true today. Friends, you are a steward, a manager of your time, of your resources, and of your relationships. And as a church, we invite you not force, but invite you to use those gifts, your time, your resources, your relationships, your passions, to further God's mission in the world. But it's yours to do as you feel between you and God. And I think here's one of the reasons why I love that. There is such joy in surrendering what you have to God. And you can't surrender when you're forced. There's such joy in saying, you know what, I'm going to give sacrificially because I want to. I'm going to give more of my time because I want to. There's joy in that. 
And I would never want to rob you of that joy. So we've got to watch out. Bad theology will expect you to cross personal boundaries um, in inappropriate ways. The, 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 the fifth one, the last one I want to talk about today is simply this, and, and it applies to really kind of all the things we've been talking about. It's simply turning an individual experience, an individual expectation, an individual passion, taking something that's individual and, uh, and turning it or projecting it into a universal expectation. I find that bad theology often stems from really positive personal experiences. Someone encounters God in a profound way, and it's so good, and it's so profound that they want it for everyone. And then that desire for it to be with everyone eventually gets turned or even more morphed and becomes an expectation where, where, for, for, that we place on other people. So, for example, maybe so, there was a moment where somebody, this would be a common story in a, in a cult or an unhealthy church. There's somebody who had a profound religious experience because they sold everything they had and they gave it to the poor and they followed Jesus. Beautiful. That's great. It becomes unhealthy when they take that personal experience and then say, now, if you want to be a part of my church, you have to do the same thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. Now, to be fair, we're not going to get into it. That is what Jesus required of somebody. It's not in the realm of options uh, if you have a relationship with God. I'm just saying. But he was talking to an individual person, wasn't he? We do this in Scripture all the time. God talks to individual people. Letters are written to individual churches, and then we make these universal expectations because of these really specific circumstances. In fact, I, I would imagine that that's probably what's happening with somebody who says, I need to be immersed. I'm guessing they probably were dunked in their baptism as an adult, and it was a beautiful experience. And I don't invalidate that. I think it's great. Because unhealthy, when they take that and they want it for other people so much that they make it an expectation, they make it a rule, a litmus test. You have to do this first in order to belong, in order to be a part of it. Now, that, those are kind of extreme measures, but here's what I found. We do this all the time, friends. So I want you to stop and think about yourself. We do this all the time. Maybe you care really about serving the poor. We have a lot of people who care passionately about serving the poor. Have you ever thought, you know what, those other people who aren't serving the poor, they're not really Christians. Has the thought even crossed your mind? Maybe you're really passionate about small groups or home groups. Have you ever at least sort of thought, like, well, you're not really a mature Christian unless you're in a weekly small group. We, we do this all the time. Maybe you're passionate about racial reconciliation. All of these are good things, but you're really passionate about it, and you kind of look at other people in this personal passion that you have. That is a good thing, and we need that passion in our community. You put that on other people, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, you're not really a mature Christian unless you're doing X, Y, and Z. You're not showing up to marches. You're not showing up to small group. You're not showing up to little bottoms. You're not giving 10%. All good things. What I find is this. Paul had to deal with this as well in the Corinthians. The Corinthians were, 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 were almost as messed up as, as, as the, the church that Jude was writing to. And he, he has to tell him, because they, they all are like putting on pressure to one another. But he makes it really clear. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 that we don't, we're not all the same. That we have different gifts, we have different passions, we bring different things to the table, and something really beautiful happens when we bring all of those together and we start influencing one another, we start sharpening one another. The thing that you're passionate about, the holy passion that you have, I'm not talking about the sports team you're passionate about, the holy passion that you have, we need it. The thing, the gift that you have, the talent you have, we need it. Other people might not get it. 
but stay in the community and invest. That's what he says. We're not all ears. We're not all mouths. We're different parts to the same body, and we bring those things, and now we start influencing one another in beautiful ways. But it becomes bad theology when we take the one thing that I'm particularly gifted or passionate or feel called to, and we start placing that expectation on other people. And I've wrestled with this, and I can only assume if I'm human that maybe you have as well. Those are five ways to recognize bad theology. There's many others, but that's where we can get started. And I want to end the book of Jude by really looking at how Jude tells us to deal with those wrapped up in bad theology. He says it like this in verse 22 and 23. He says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. He gives three responses for three different kinds of situations. And he's really talking about three different kinds of people. First, he talks about those who doubt. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, have mercy on those who doubt. These are people most likely who were caught up in a cult or bad theology in Jude since, since they were probably caught up in some of the false teachers and the, the things that they were teaching, and they've come out of it. And if you've ever been wrapped up in a bad community or, or bad teaching or an unhealthy place and you come out of it, then you know just what that kind of doubt feels like. You have all kinds of questions and fears and worries, and, and you don't know what to believe anymore. And you, you don't know how to, the old expression, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, this happens. And he's like, I don't even know if I want to believe anything because of the bad experience I had. For this person, Jude says, have mercy. I know many of you, uh, or at least some of you, have come out of unhealthy religious experiences, and you've been hurt, and I just want to say, I'm sorry. And here, I hope that we have nothing but grace for you. Take your time. Go slowly. You're safe. Your questions are safe. Your doubts are safe. Maybe a little, your rage, if that comes up, safe. The second, Jude says, are for those who are caught up in the fire. He says, snatch them from the fire. This seems to be referring to people who are vulnerable and who, if left unattended, will be destroyed. These are people, I think, in the church that Jude is writing about who, if nothing happens, if someone doesn't take action, they'll be destroyed. They're caught in the fire. They're going to be destroyed unless somebody snatches them out. So if nothing happens, they will be destroyed by this bad theology. And here's the thing. If someone is currently in an unhealthy, bad place... uh, and in subject to abuse that comes from bad theology, it's, it's not quite appropriate then to just say, I'm sorry, that must be hard. Mercy for that person isn't quite enough, is it? No, there needs to be more than mercy. They need help. We have to take action. And Jude says you need to snatch them out of the fire before they're consumed. Here's the thing. We, we have to recognize we can't often help people who don't want help. So we have to name that. But we also can do more than just watch from a distance and feel sorry for him. Jude says it requires action. It requires some kind of intervention. It, it, to step in and at least try to talk to them. You, you can't do anything that someone isn't willing to receive, but, but we can do more than just show mercy from a distance. We can try and snatch them out of the fire. That's the second kind of situation. The third one is this. He says, there are others who are still wearing their old clothes that are corrupted. Clothes pulling from New Testament and Old Testament tradition is often referring to one's character. 
In other words, these people that he's referring to are still living and seem satisfied with their bad theology. They're still wearing the clothes that, and their character is still corrupted by it. And they're still maybe doing some of those things that hurt people. For those, he says, yes, still offer them mercy, but this time with a good amount of fear and a fair amount of caution. You got to be careful because they still got that corruption on. And you could be liable. You don't want to touch that. You don't want to go down that road. You don't want to be negatively influenced. I have a friend who's a pastor. She happens to be a female. She's serving at a church where not everyone in the church feels like a pastor should be female. It's very common today. And there's one guy in particular who feels like, you know, pastors shouldn't be females. And he schedules an appointment. He says, I want to meet with the pastor. He comes in and kind of puts off a little bit of a vibe of vulnerability and says, I need to talk to my pastor because I'm really struggling with women in leadership to his female pastor. Do you see the little bit of a conflict of interest there? You know, he's confiding in her, but you're also like, is there a, you've got an agenda, right? Did he? Probably. I don't know. The correct response according to Jude is, okay, offer some mercy but with fear. You know, just proceed cautiously. Now imagine the situation was a little different. Imagine, imagine that there's a young female who comes in and sits down with this female pastor and says, hey, I go to this church that doesn't let women preach. I really feel called to preach. That might be a snatch out of the fire situation. Not that you should like yank him out of a church or whatever, but like you, you take action. You say, well, let's talk about that. Let's wrestle with your call. Let's wrestle with the theology that seems to be defining your, your personhood. And, and so there's a certain amount of action, a lot less caution, and not even necessarily mercy, but a little bit more direct conversation. You could also then meet with someone else who really is like younger, grew up in a toxic environment, really wrestling with, some, with tough theology, and all the appropriate response is mercy. Like, let's, let's, let's wrestle with it. Let's talk about it. So there's three different kinds of scenarios. One is to snatch, one is to offer mercy, and the other one is to offer caution. These are good responses um, to common people you might interact with that are impacted by bad theology. And we live in a world where it's just our tendency. We offer mercy, sometimes we gotta take action, and sometimes we offer caution. On the front page of our website, it says, uh, and we've changed it from time to time, but it currently says, we're doing church differently. And people are like, what does that mean? Well, if you scroll down, I think you'll see. Because if you scroll down on our website, it says, we're doing church differently, but on, down below, it, there's a list of commitments that we make to, to people who are interested in our church. Uh, words that we, that we put together that show our desire to try to be a little different. And most of them are in response to the kind of bad theology, the unhealthy kind of communities that, that many people have experienced in other places. Here they are. I want to end by just sharing them with you. Here's how we hope to be a little bit different. Our commitment to you is this. One, you never be judged no matter who you are or what you believe. Two, you can share the real you as much or as little as you want. Three, your views on science or politics don't have to be checked at the door. Four, you'll never be expected to hide your doubts or your questions. And five, you won't be forced to do something you disagree with. I love that one because I'm going to, you know, I often challenge us to th wrestle with things that you might disagree with. I'm not, hopefully never you feel like you're forced. We're in this together. Life is messy. Faith is messy. Um, and we want to just be, we want to have a theology that above all reminds us of the love of God. Reminds us to love God with all that we are and love each other as ourselves. I'm going to invite the band to come up and as they do, will you, uh, will you pray with me?
God, we give you uh, thanks for the words of Jude, for the ways in which you have used these to challenge and sharpen us. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us now. That the ways in which we maybe as a church have fallen short, we repent and we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you would continue to work into our hearts as we reflect back on our own experiences, the things that we've maybe held too tightly and shoved onto other people that, you would, that we repent and we ask that you forgive us. For those times when we were aggressive, sure of ourselves, we humbly repent and we ask that you forgive us. would invite us into a life of humble obedience where it's not about me being right but me being loving. And for those times where we felt like I was more interested in me being right than me being loving, Lord, we repent and we ask that you forgive us. God, we give you thanks for your grace that is unending. We have no desire to exploit it, but we relish in its beauty. We receive it, and we offer it to other people. We are thankful that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You give us new clothes. We can set aside the corrupted character that we've maybe inherited from other places, and you give us a new identity, a new creature that you're making in us. Help us to be the best version of ourselves. We say all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Will you please stand for our closing song?